It's great to be here uh, on behalf of my uh, wife and I. We uh, absolutely love coming down and spending time with you dear folk and to be able to uh, ponder on this the most sacred of days, the significance and the heart of what Christian worship in the light of the gospel really is. As uh, I was looking at this passage, I was thinking of the, the sorts of things you hear on TV and on the radio from our official church leaders, our representatives of the mainstream. And I must say that I'm consistently disappointed <laughs> whenever they are asked what is the significance of Easter Friday. Invariably, they come out with the sort of nonsense that, um, well, it reminds us that we should be compassionate to the poor, or we should be thinking today of those who suffer oppression. That is, they, they turn this unique story about the unique God-man into a story about other men. They turn theology into ethics. And this is not about ethics. This is about the unique experience of a unique one. And it's with that uh, that we know this is to be true because as you open John's Gospel, he gives the secret away. He tells the essence of this, uh, this narrative up front when he says in his very first words that in the beginning was the Logos. This is the one who is the self-expression of God himself. God stepping out of his mystery into a made reality. And so the odd thing about reading this little passage that was just read to us is that we sitting here today have a ringside seat. We are more aware of what is going on and the characters that we're reading about. It's an odd thing to read about a story where people have a superficial grasp of what they're actually experiencing. But that was actually what is happening. Jesus has just been tried... And we read that, we'll just take it as it comes, they took Jesus and he went out. Now that's a fascinating little juxtaposition there, isn't it? On the one hand, men are doing something, but at the same time, God is doing something. They might be taking him and seem to be in control, but he's stepping out. And this is how it finishes in this passage down a few verses beyond what was read. These things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Another scripture says they will look on him whom they've pierced. We're not going to get there today. But the whole thrust of this passage is that though men may do their darndest, God gets his way. And his will is unfolding through the free will of humans, doing what humans normally do, their worst. And the structure of this passage is fascinating. Three little uh, areas I want to look at, three little uh, panels, if you like, this morning uh, in this story. There's a story of four guards, and then the story of four friends, and then the story of four instructions 
from our Christ. They tell us that they took him to a place called Golgotha, which is an Aramaic term which simply means cranium hill. It's a rubbish tip. It's where they threw people who could not be identified and animal carcasses. It's the back end of Jerusalem. What a place to be buried. What a place even to be executed. That he is put to death in a place like that. And to add insult to injury, they make him take probably just the crossbar that he is about to be nailed to. And they lump is to lump this uh, sleeper along uh, to get acquainted with his final resting place. We have to realise that crucifixion, and we don't want to dwell on the gore of this passage so much as its significance, but uh, the idea of crucifixion was completely insidious. It was an amazing design where basically the person who is usually just uh, nailed or tied to the crossbar, they have a little seat halfway up that they can't quite reach. But if they're prepared to press through the pain of lifting themselves upon nails, they can sit on that seat until they slide off. And during that time, they can get breath in until they slide off and asphyxiate themselves. It's cross asphyxiation. But the human body recoils against asphyxiation, so again you will lift and breathe. It's, it's a design so that the human being who is oriented towards staying alive as an organism finds death itself more palatable. That's the nature of this uh, insidious design for crucifixion. It's not just an execution, it's a taunt. And we first begin with uh, a story of Pilate, and this is a continuation, it's the final uh, capstone of the previous panel where Jesus was tried uh, at the seat of judgment by Pilate and where Pilate himself was wedged by the legal minds of Jerusalem And remember, he was hoping to find a way to have this innocent man released, but uh, when he realised that the crowd was going to record that this one was an insurrectionist, that he was a threat to Rome, then Pilate had to cave in. And so Pilate has some paperwork to finish this deed and this verdict that he has handed down. And he makes a placard in three languages to be put upon the top of the cross that this one is the king of the Jews. And that is that he is claiming to be an insurrectionist, an alternative to Caesar, an alternative uh, authority, an alternative power. And this gets up the nose of the people that hated Jesus the most, the high priests, And they say, uh, let's be more accurate, it's just he isn't the king of the Jews, but he said he was the king of the Jews. Can you just, you know, get get your crayon out and have that altered? You know, a little bit of late censorship, editorial work. Uh, And he knows that this is going to get back to Rome, but you never 
execute capital punishment upon someone for an alleged crime. That is a travesty of justice. So this isn't Pilate coming to faith at the 11th hour. This is Pilate looking after Pilate. Again, uh, a picture of his crassness. He doesn't want it to get back to Rome that he has killed someone publicly in the name of Rome who didn't have a fair trial. So this is a way of getting the paperwork done to show that it was all cleared away. He was an insurrectionist, an alternative king. And in the middle of that, ironically, you see the hand of God is at work. And even the, the pitched enemy of the gospel ends up portraying the first mission statement to go around the world in three languages, that this is the king of the Jews. God is having the last laugh. And then there are four guards. Why you need four guards? I mean, this guy's not going anywhere. Why do they have four guards? It was to ensure that no one would be able to say, particularly at the point at which this, this specimen is taken down from his pin board, that nothing dodgy happened on the way to the grave. That's why they're there. But this is an indignified, typical bunch of brutes. And usually, even with the criminal, there is a certain amount of dignity accorded to the final breath. But here, they can't even wait for his death, and they're already dividing up the will. Jesus' sum total of his estate is what he's wearing. But he's now stripped naked, hanging before all and sundry. And before him and in his conscious presence and hearing, these people divide up his clothes. They rip them into little shreds. What are they doing? They're souvenir hunters, folks. Not only are they souvenir hunters, they're superstitious souvenir hunters. And they know that this is the one, this cloth, this garment was pressed against the skin of the healer, the prophet, the miracle worker. And these people are living in a superstitious age and you can get good money for those fragments. Here is the cult of relics in its infancy. This is where it begins. And when it comes to the cloak, they realise that this is a seamless robe, like knitted on one needle, and they don't tear that. But this is, for them, a good day. They get a little bonus for the salary for this holiday work in Passover. It says something about the pitiful nature of mundane life when all they can look forward to is just a little bonus in the wallet, a little gamble on a little flutter, and they raffle the cloak. But they don't realise that this was all written in the Psalms. As it says in the scriptures, they divided my garments amongst them and for my clothing they cast lots. Not many of us will be able to determine what happens to our will, even with a good lawyer, let alone when one is totally impotent, hanging on a cross. And yet again they fulfill what God knew. They're orchestrating the best conclusion possible. 
So the soldiers did these things we read. But then we come to the four friends. And here we have three Marys and uh, the one who Jesus loved, John himself. And they're standing afar behind the immediate scene. They're his last remaining adoring public. They're doing the best they can do. They're just being there so if he happens to be able to lift his head, he might be able to see some familiar eyes, familiar faces in the crowd. That's all they can think of doing. That he might not be totally solitary, but he himself is in his last. He is exhausted. He hasn't slept the whole night before. He's been whipped within an inch of his life. He has had blood loss and dehydration, most likely a splitting headache, and now every breath costs him incredible pain to take. But with this last breath, of all the things to be saying, he himself also has unfinished paperwork. And so efficiently and effectively... And economically, he motions firstly to his mother and he looks after his obligations under the law of honouring parents. It's an arrangement which is like a a, a fictive proxy arrangement and he nods to Mary and looks at John and says, Behold your son. She gets the message. And then he turns his head to John with the next breath and rasps out, Behold your mother. Jesus sees that as important to do. Why? It's because he has been accused all through his life of being lawless, of being a, an inventor of a new religion. But now he honours the law right down to the last full stop. He lived under the law right until the end because he's dying as the law required for sin. This is entirely appropriate. And then finally, the spotlight moves and closes in on that head. And he says these four things. Firstly, he says, I thirst. Now, those standing by, those buffoons, think he is literally thirsty. Of course he's thirsty. And they run and give him a drink on a stick. Not only a drink, but an unpalatable drink which he would not have been able to swallow. But he is not talking about literal thirst. What's he doing? As he comes towards this incomparable moment, he is reciting a boyhood psalm out of the liturgy of Israel from Psalm 69. And in that psalm, you read words like this, I am weary of crying out, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And reproaches have broken my heart, so I'm in despair. I look for pity, but there are none. I look for comforters, 
I find them. They give me poison for my food, and for my thirst they give me sour wine to drink. Who's running this show? Who's writing this script? What Jesus is doing is reciting his boyhood liturgies. The only comfort he has are those memorised psalms that every Jewish boy knew. He's having his quiet time in front of the world because that is his grip on reality. So this is not a tragedy. This is a fulfilment. This is a confirmation, not a decimation. And this is not our story. And then he says, secondly, it is finished. What is finished? He's not saying my life is at an end or the ordeal is finished. What's he saying? He's saying my work is finished. My ministry is finished. This is the culmination of an eternal determination that God has set himself to bring his kicking and rebellious and perverse creation back into worship. That work is finished. This is the one who was not just slain, but slain before the foundation of the world. Not just before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye, but before history was even a concept. This one cannot be supplemented because his work is finished. We don't add to this work. We don't need to ensure it. We don't need to add to it, even with religious gestures. Lenten exercises are absolutely pointless because it is finished. An eternal work is completed. And then he bows his head and gives up the spirit. Did you notice what I said then? He bows his head and gives up the spirit. My translation takes its cue from Matthew and says it gives up, he gives up his spirit. Now that's true, he gave up the ghost. But John isn't saying that. The last night, the previous night, he gave a long sermon explaining about the coming of the Spirit. Twenty times he mentions the phrase, the Spirit. So when John says that Jesus gave up the Spirit, I think he means the Spirit. He doesn't want us to go and edit his material here. What is Jesus doing? Well, this is where we step into realms that we cannot comprehend. You know, to give up the spirit for us is just a phrase. To give up the spirit for Jesus is to do something which has not been done ever in eternal history before or since. This is a unique moment. I mean, this is the same spirit by which he was conceived. That spirit created him in the womb. This is the same spirit who baptized him in his moment of ministry ordination. 
This is the spirit who led him out into the wilderness and led him back again. This is the same spirit who empowered him to drive out the demons. This is the same spirit who gave him the healing capacity to raise the dead. This is the same spirit who inspired him to utter those prophetic words that still ring through history even here today. Same spirit. He gave up that spirit. This is the one who had never known existence apart from intimate fellowship with the spirit in eternity. And now he gives up the spirit. This was unseen territory for Jesus. This was incredibly risky for Jesus. And it meant that when he went into the tomb... There was no possibility that that spirit would animate him. He is not only physically dead, he is spiritually abandoned. That's the nature of what is happening here. There is no possibility of life without the spirit. And why does he do that? It's an act of supreme faith on the one hand. Jesus here is taking an action which is not only supremely faithful, it's supremely risky. He has to trust that this one at the moment who is being baptised into the wrathful breath, the fiery breath of God, this one has to trust that God will actually use his death to wipe away our sins. This one has to hope that this God will vindicate his servant, the servant of Yahweh, that this God will remember his promise to the patriarchs. He is flying blind. He has no external visible support at this moment. And now he has no invisible support to sustain his own spirit. But he had to give up the spirit why did he do that you know up until this moment this spirit had been the sole possession of the logos the son of god the spirit was that bond of love between those two persons when jesus gives up that spirit he institutes the possibility that the Spirit might become our possession. He has that ahead of him. So all these, all these cretins, all these mockers, all these materialists, all these mourners in front of him might have a chance to taste the precious love of the Holy God in their experience that's what's happening here we daren't place ourselves in this frame dare we this is a story about God the story of the sort of God that we have this is why Paul at the end of his manifesto says, I urge you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies, that is every last bit of you, as living sacrifices, just like he did, which is only your reasonable worship. Or as that great martyr of the faith, 
Jim Elliot put it, that he is no fool who risks what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is where we step into the frame. I find it rather tragic that as you go through this week that we've just been through, you hear people talk about giving up things for Lent. Some of our friends are giving up chocolate. Some of them are giving up television for Lent. And some are even giving up exercise, poor things. My heart bleeds. But Jesus did not step into his cosmos, into his terra firma, to remove chocolate from the cosmos or pathetic reruns of sitcoms. Jesus came to rid his universe of sin, that this universe might bear some resemblance to his initial idea. He has not given up on his vision for us. If we want to have a Lenten exercise that is meaningful, we have to fall lockstep in with this vision and give up sin. We have to be able to say to Jesus, if we're to appreciate this story this morning, his way. We have to say to him, Lord, you know what has me by the throat. You know what I find it difficult to let go of. But in the light of who you are and what you've done, you can have it now. That's what a Christian is. That's how you become a Christian and that's how you go on Easter by Easter. He can have it all. He deserves nothing less. Let us pray. Lord, you who knows each of us from whom no thought is hidden, this Easter, as our act of worship, your minority flock who knows the secret, who knows the meaning of the story, again give you our wills, minds and hearts. It's the least we can do. And we simply say to you, Lord, whatever it is, have your own way. You know there are points of resistance, there are points of fear, there are points of apprehension in our life about obeying, obeying you. But Lord, make us willing and have your own way. This day we pray. Amen.